Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Olivia Mentor. And today we are offering you our best, our brightest, our shiniest advice. (laughs) I thought you were going to say best and worst. (laughs) No, I, I hope it's good. I feel like last time we did advice, I feel like we both rated ourselves a seven out of 10. I'm hoping we yeah. can get to an eight. I think so. And these are all really interesting topics to discuss, whether you get something out of it or not. I hope you do, though. It was interesting that there are a lot of repeat topics. We'll talk about it more once we get into, into the queue. I noticed that as well. But tell me about your high. What's been going on? What's been good? Yeah, my high is using Substack for my newsletter, offering more newsletter stuff and paid subscriptions. And I honestly didn't know if people would pay for anything. I've been sending my newsletter out pretty regularly, my like weekly essay for about a year or maybe a little more. People have been so supportive and I've just really enjoyed like being able to focus on it and to dedicate more time to it and be more creative and having just like a little bit of money from the subscriptions means that I feel better able to, and I can like say no to other things, which is just my goal this year. And so I like, feel like it's all coming together and I feel really good about it. I bought my full year subscription listeners. Thank you. You should too. I, (laughs) thank you. I feel like you're really good at it. I love your personal essays. When you were talking on the podcast last week about how you were sending out a newsletter about buying new underwear, it, it hadn't gone out yet. So I hadn't read it at that point. And in my head, I was like, oh, okay, sure. And it was so different than what I expected. I feel like you always have such thoughtful, poignant, but relatable little essays. Thank you. That's what I'm going for. It feels really good. So I'm excited to keep it going. Oh, good. Tell me about your high. I'm so excited about this from the the brief note you have in this outline. My high is that Bone Mary Berry, which is a fiction podcast that I co-wrote, produced, and directed last year. It came out last February. Um, It's nominated for an award. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. What award. Thank you. It's called the Ambie Awards. And I think that they're trying to be like the Oscars for podcasting. Last year was the first award ceremony and I heard it was pretty decent. So I don't know. I'm going to Vegas for one night only for (laughs) this award show. I have calculated very precisely that I think we have an actual 0% chance of winning. I think it's one of those things like the SAG Awards where the member body votes. And so like, I don't think enough people have heard about our baby indie show for us to actually win. I think it's a little bit of a popularity contest. You might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. It would be really fun. Yeah. Uh, So do you get to wear like a gown? Well, so the dress code for it is cocktail casual, which is the most confusing dress code I've ever heard. So I have a fun dress that I'm going to wear. I don't care if I'm overdressed. It's Las Vegas. You can't be overdressed. You can wear whatever you want. You can be naked. It'd be fine. And then we're going to a fun dinner afterwards. So uh, we're going to Joe's Crab. So at least I get a seafood tower out of it. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Really yeah. fun. Maybe I'll, I'm not a big gambler, but you know, maybe I'll just throw. I was about to I, ask you actually, cause I didn't know this about you. Well, I, I feel like I have to throw some money in a slot and just see if oh, I get yeah. big. Do you like blackjack? I could sit at a blackjack table for like hours. 
I think gambling is really fun as a social activity, but I don't like to lose money. So I'll take $200 and be like, this is the entertainment for the night. But then once it's gone, yeah, I, I don't want to I would never ever do it alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like there's nothing in that for me. So if, if friends are playing blackjack, I'll play. Somebody usually needs to tell me what to do. I'm not very good at it. I think craps is really fun because it's a big group oh. activity. Yeah. So I like craps, but... um. No, I'm not a huge gambler, but I will. I'll, I'll pick a weird slot machine and put in. That's I don't fun. know what the denomination is and just see if I hit it big. Well, I hope you do. I hope in, so too. in all regards, in all regards, I hope, so I hope too. you win. <laughs> Thanks. That's fun. Tell me your low. So my low. Okay. So maybe it's not the low part of it. Maybe what inspired it is the low. So I deleted TikTok. I, on Monday... I was really frustrated with myself. I'm writing the first draft of my book, and I feel like it is so ripe with temptation to procrastinate. And Mm -hmm. I have been spending so much time on TikTok. And I feel like I have a really up and down relationship with my screen time. Not in that the screen time goes up and down, but in that sometimes I really care about how much time I'm spending on my phone and other times I just kind of have an attitude of like, oh, well, it is what it is. But, you know, I'm spending five to six hours on my phone and whenever I think too hard about that, it blows my mind. Yeah, mine is probably more. I could read a quick Colleen Hoover book a day with that. You know, I could. Or two. Yeah, you totally Yeah, I could get two writing sessions in and write 3,000 words in that. And not that I'm going to use the time productively necessarily, but five to six just sounds excessive. Like that's a third of my waking hours. Yeah. So I was on a walk and I just deleted it. Oh, I'm so inspired because my low was sort of TikTok related. And I didn't actually want to, I sort of mentioned this to you yesterday. My Pedro Pascal TikTok, which I've mentioned like four times on here. How it's can that be a low? Because it has taken over my psyche. It is too much. I it is too uh, much. I have are gone through the are they, the, are they thirst trap edits? Is it interview yes, clips? Yes. Oh, it's it's, it's all, all of it. it. It's all of it. It's it's too much. It's like my entire for you page. I started watching Narcos the other night. I was like, Olivia, what are you doing? He's not even a main character. And he just seems so nice. If anyone listening has a connection to Pedro Pascal and if he wants to come on this podcast or the other one that would make Olivia die is Ryder Strong, who she did email and he did not email back. But if anyone has a connection to those, I'm just putting it out there that you would get a gold star on our Hollywood Walk of Fame, our personal Hollywood Walk of Fame. Okay, I might delete TikTok too. It's, I might do it. The thing about it is, is I can't go on and spend less than half an hour at the best case scenario. Usually it's two hours. And I feel like the value I get out of it is I find a lot of things that I think are really funny or valuable or useful, but the ratio of valuable to not valuable <laughs> sucks. Yes. Like I feel yes. like... It's 2% of what I'm consuming is valuable. And I just can't sift through the haystack to get to the needles. I lost myself in that analogy, but I I don't know why I want the needles. Yeah. 
I never feel good after being on it for like an hour. I'm always like, what happened there? Like, where did I go? It's like part of myself just disappears. I'm enjoying myself while I'm doing it, but then I hate myself after. Yeah, I get it. It's so um, is, I, I might is, join you. Is Pedro Pascal TikTok your low or do you have another it's, low? So, well, I have 5,000 unread emails in my inbox. So that was going to be my low. But if we're really being honest and I'm just going to embarrass myself, I just like, I, I don't know. I've... I've entered this sort of primal state of like teenage girldom where you're just like obsessed with people to such an intense degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm almost 30. So <laughs> I don't even, it, I don't even understand it. It's just that the algorithm is feeding it to me and I know I'm not the only one. Like there's, I, it's the whole world. It's the whole world. Um, anyway, he seems like a nice break. man. <laughs> Okay, yeah, Let, let's take an ad break. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to talk about Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. So I'm a longtime Pros fanatic, and I just logged into their site, and I'm on my eighth reorder. It is that good. And I'm paying for it with my own money. Like, if these ads went away tomorrow, I'd be sad because I love talking about Pros, and I'm genuinely such a fan of them, but I'd keep ordering because this is the best my hair has ever looked. It's thicker, it's shinier, and I can go longer between washes than I ever have. And I continue to be astonished by how much healthier my hair is with pros. And it doesn't matter if your hair is similar or different than mine or Becca's because with the in-depth hair quiz, pros gets to know you and your hair goals and uses 85 personal factors to create your perfect blend of ingredients to help you get closer to your hair goals with every wash. I personally have very fine hair. And the thing I struggle with the most is I feel like my hair is either too dry or it is super greasy and weighed down, but pros somehow has found this perfect balance where my hair feels both super clean, but also light and bouncy and shiny and hydrated. So it's kind of amazing. And pro tip, get the Corsica scent. They describe it on the site as Anjou pear, peony, and cedarwood. I would describe it as a fancy Italian spa. It just, oh, it smells so luxe. And the other great part about pros is the review and refine feature. So as you continue to use pros, you get to tell them how they did after every bottle and they make tweaks to make your next one even better. With other shampoos, I feel like my hair kind of gets used to them after a few bottles and it stops working. And this has absolutely not been my experience with pros. I'm going on almost three years with them and I still see the results. And it's risk-free. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've tried, they'll take your products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash BOP, that's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash BOP for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Let's get into some advice. I think the first one is to you because I do not have any experience here. This person said that they are very excited to get married to their person, but they are very stressed about their wedding and they're experiencing anxiety for the first time. And they wanted to know if you have any advice for how to look forward to it versus stressing about it. So 
I would say planning a wedding and getting married was one of the most stressful experiences of my life. And what year did you get married? 2021. Okay. So we had postponed our wedding a year. We were supposed to get married originally in May 2020. We postponed it a year. So we ended up cutting the guest list by 100 people. Yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. So I totally get it being a stressful experience. <laughs> it just is. And I think, honestly, the core things that I was stressed out about are the core things that a lot of people are stressed out about, which is, one, like, there's a sense of, like, you have this one shot to do this thing that you've spent your whole life thinking about in some form. And it feels like a lot of pressure to get it right, like down to small details that aren't even that important in the grand scheme of things. And also like you're very much the center of attention. Everyone is staring at you. Everyone is looking at you. I hated that part of it so, so much. But my advice on how to look forward to it versus stressing about it, I would say not to bring it back to TikTok, but there are these TikToks going around. I don't know if you've seen them, Becca. No, but I'm it's definitely people... not on wedding TikTok. <laughs> I'm not either. But it's people basically roasting their like 2014 weddings and mm. like their mason jar centerpieces or whatever. Um, and talking about all the choices they wouldn't have made if they had it today. And if you find yourself stressing out about details like that, especially aesthetic details, I think watching those videos could be really helpful because I'm someone that like very much has a strong vision for something. And I'm like, it has to be this way. And if it's not this way, um, aesthetically, like it will really bother me. And looking back even two years later, there's things that I would have done differently with small details in my, in our wedding. Um, and I think that is a good way to like remind yourself that no matter what you choose, even if you spend six months making yourself miserable over, you know, what food to serve or whatever, DJ or band or all those silly things that feel really important when you're planning a wedding, um, you're probably still going to look back in like two years and be like, I do that differently. All this is to say, like, there's no point <laughs> in making yourself miserable and being overly concerned with what other people think. Next question is an interesting one. How did you both figure out and develop your own personal sense of style? I feel like I had a span of time where I was sucked into the fashion influencer world and I don't think I actually know what I like anymore. I can relate to this. I can relate to this and I have a theory about what has happened. So I think that there is currently a power vacuum in terms of style trends. And I think that two things happened that created it. I think that kind of the crumpling of the print magazine industry, which was happening mm. for a long time, but I think, you know, really in, let's say five years ago, a lot of magazines started shutting their print edition. And then even the ones that still exist have just changed so dramatically. Like I was such a magazine consumer when I was younger. I subscribed to them. Every time I flew, I, I got a stack of magazines and it was such an experience. What was your favorite magazine? Uh, different ones at different times. I was a fucking diehard for Lucky Magazine in the beginning. Oh, okay. Like, I remember getting the first Lucky Magazine. I remember loving Lucky Magazine. I also, like, I read Vogue religiously when I was so young and couldn't afford anything that Vogue was talking about. My life didn't look <laughs> anything like Vogue was talking about. But it was like the Bible of aspirational, cool girl 
lifestyle. I feel like magazines determined a lot of how I established my personal style and also how I knew what trends were and I refreshed my personal style. And even if you weren't a huge magazine consumer, I feel like people who were really into style were reading magazines and it was incepting. It was like trickle down trends almost. Yeah, that's true. Like they were establishing that. And I, I think that even though magazines still have an online edition, I just don't think it's the same. And I don't think anything else has really filled that power vacuum in the same way. And then the second thing I think that's changed is there's no office culture, you know, with the pandemic. Some people are back to the office, but I remember when I worked at Bobble Bar in 2012, that was so much of how I, I don't know, it was like my own street style blog of like, what were other people wearing? Like, what were the new items that people were getting? What were the trends people were excited about? Like, I remember there would be days where I would walk into the office and five people were wearing leather shorts. You know, it was just, here's people who have a similar life to me Mm -hmm. and here's what they're wearing. And so even if you don't work in fashion, I feel like you see a daily slideshow of what all your coworkers, these people who theoretically have a similar life to you, are wearing. And that doesn't exist for a lot of people anymore who are fully remote. So I also feel like I do not know what I actually like anymore. And I do not know what my personal style is like anymore. I literally wrote myself a note on my phone a couple of weeks ago that I was like, I've had like a death of my own personal style. And like, I need to figure out what I like to wear. Yeah. I don't know the solution yet. The only thing that I can suggest that I've been finding so helpful is I've mentioned her before, Jess Camerata, who is a style lifestyle blogger. Her blog is called An Indigo Day. She does these story posts on Mondays. I think it's called Millennial Mondays. And people ask her style questions. And I find both the advice that she gives and then also the reference pictures that she uses to be so helpful. She like roasts herself of things she used to wear. But it's very much about these things that should, they seem simple, but they're not of like, what shoes should I be wearing with not skinny jeans? Or like, can I still be wearing this piece that I had from five years ago that isn't obviously out of style? And like, she has such great advice on proportions and like not proportions of your body, proportions of like the clothing relative to each other, where it's like, okay, if you're wearing baggier jeans, wear a tighter top. And I find it so helpful. That does sound really helpful. I feel like there's not a lot of like practical advice these days. It's just like, here's Gen Z on TikTok wearing a hundred variations of the same thing. Yeah. And that's really hard because you're also looking at people who it's not the theory behind it or it's not the lesson behind it. It's just the outfit. So, you know, you can go out and buy exactly the same thing, but then you have to do the work of finding people who have the exact same body as you to like know Mm -hmm. how it would look on you. I don't know. Yeah. Another thing what you were saying made me think of that I hadn't really considered, but I'm now thinking about is we don't have like that office culture where you're just seeing a lot of people in other outfits all the time and like inspiration and stuff. But what we are seeing is on social media, which is often like either a very carefully lit, like angled video or a completely static photo. And so you're not seeing anyone sit down where like their outfit all of a sudden falls apart, looks awful. (laughs) 
Exactly. You're not seeing it in different light. You're not seeing it move. You're not really seeing it in from different angles. And so I, I feel like no wonder I have the experience so often where I put something on that I've seen on someone else and looks great. And I'm like, well, this does not look right on me. I do not feel good in this. Like, why is that? And then, you know, I throw it out and I try to find the next thing and it's feels very difficult <laughs> right now. I'm kind of right there with you. Do you, how did you develop your personal style? You used to be a huge blog consumer. Yes. I've always been, I was very into fashion blogs. I had my own like fashion blog when I was like 18 and wearing the, the bubble necklaces or whatever. Mm. But over the years, I guess I, I've stopped trying to like make it one thing. And on one hand, it make, it put, takes off the pressure because I feel like I don't have to dress a certain way. On the other hand, I feel like I just buy everything and feel lost. <laughs> it's so frustrating to me because I feel like I finally have the income to be able to buy the clothes that I once really wanted, but I don't know what I want anymore. Like I don't have, I feel like I used to have such a clear view of what I wanted. And now I don't. Yeah. It's confusing. It I, is. I guess we're all in the same boat though, it seems like. I don't know that we have advice for you. We just have commiseration. <laughs> yeah. And follow follow Jess Camerata and Indigo Day, I think is her handle on Instagram. Here's another question. This person says, I do not have a social media following despite countless attempts to organically gain one. I know I don't necessarily need a social media following to be successful, but I can't help but feel like having one would make it easier to do everything from getting a book deal to networking for a new job to making friends in a new city. How have you grown your social media followings and has having a following helped you? What advice do you have for someone who is looking to build a personal and professional network without having a following? So how did I grow my social media following? The first question this is the multi-part question. I honestly, I, I started writing on the internet and then I started working for a website and it kind of just grew from there. I've, I've never had like a large like I've never gone viral except for when I was in college and wrote an article that went viral. So, and even then it was like, I gained 3000 followers or something. It wasn't, you know, 10,000. I feel like you to speculate about you to you, <laughs> I feel like you grew a lot of your following by talking about your relationship with your body and body positivity, because I know a few people who followed you before you became a co-host of this podcast who were so excited and had followed you for years because of that content. Yes, that is true. I kind of found myself in that space once I started working at Bustle, which wrote a lot about body positivity and body neutrality and plus size fashion. And I worked with some people who were in those spaces as well. So it kind of just organically grew. I found myself writing about it a lot. Um, I was really interested in it. My relationship with my body was changing all the time as it continues to. And so I feel like Honestly, I guess in a nutshell, the times that I've been the most honest and open on social media are the times when I see my following grow. And I like that, but I won't say that it has always helped me <laughs> to answer the second part of the question. I I don't know. Do you have an answer to this question? Do you feel like having a following always is helpful? No. I don't I don't know. I So I feel like my social following has come from this podcast. I I provide zero value on social media. It is just like, hey, if you already like me from this podcast, here's more of me. I create zero value on social media, except for maybe book recommendations is the only place where I create value. Yes, you definitely do provide value, but I understand what you're saying. You're not like, it's not your job. 
I'm not like here are tips or here's here's content for you. Yeah. Essays. I'm just like, here's me. I'm here. So I don't like there's no strategic thought in terms of my social media presence. In terms of what it's gotten me, I mean, I think it did have some impact on my book deal. I, I think where it definitely had impact is getting an agent. I had agents reach out to me because they knew I was writing a book as opposed to having to go through the query process. And I think that definitely helped. However, I don't think it necessarily helped me get the actual book deal itself. It just, it was a, a bonus, I guess, because I have, I have like 20, I think I have 21,000 followers. It's not a big enough audience that book publishers are like, oh my God, can't, can't wait to tap into this. Um, and the other thing is, and I don't know what kind of book you want to write. You just said a book deal. If you write a fiction book, you have to write the book itself before you sell it. Nobody's just giving you a book deal. So if the book isn't good, I don't think even if you have a huge following, it really gets you anything. I've gotten some free things that are cool. Overall, if it went away tomorrow, I would be really sad for my book because I think it is the audience of people that I'm keeping in touch with who will support my career. But in terms of like perks or bennies or something, I don't don't know that it's like changed my life in any major way. Yeah. I would also say to consider another, like the, the opposite side of things, which is that when you grow a following with like every like bump in audience or whatever you want to call it, growth, an audience you have, you're also like dealing with this group of people who now has expectations for what you're going to put out into the world or how you're going to operate. And like, even when I quit my job and went freelance, there are people like, Oh, she, I liked it better when you were like going to events and stuff and, you know, interviewing people and getting free products and showing them off. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who will be like, oh, I liked it better when she was like sharing more fashion stuff and less house stuff or whatever. And that's not always the most conducive thing to being creative or building uh, or writing a book or or any of that. So or your mental health or your mental health (laughs) or like being really clear about what you want to do outside of all of that, Mm because there is a certain sense of like, I owe I mean, I don't want to feel like this, but I think it's a natural part of having a following of any size is like on some level you feel like you owe people something, even if that's just an explanation of something and you don't. But for me, I've struggled in the past with feeling that way. So, you know, I'm thinking back to when I worked in house and when I was hiring people in teams and I feel like even hiring people for social media positions, I think it was always a like a kicker, like a, a, side benefit if somebody had a following, but I don't think I ever would prioritize somebody that had a following. So I don't, you didn't say what you do and I I don't know quite what you're looking to get out of it, but I don't think it's, I certainly don't think it's necessary. If you do want inspiration, I have two ideas and people that I think you should look at. So the first one is Carly Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S. And she is a literary agent And she hosts the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. And I think she does an exceptional job on social media creating value in her professional lane. She posts a lot of kind of trend forecasty things in in the book world that she's seeing in publishing. She posts a lot of 
advice for authors. Like she creates a lot of value and she also has like human content that I feel like allows people to also develop a relationship with her. So I think she does an excellent job of somebody using it from a professional lens who has a smaller following. And the second person that I think uses it kind of professionally in a different way is, um, do you follow Mrs. Dow Jones? No, never heard of them. Hers is all finance advice. And so, (laughs) you know, she talks a lot about the stock market and she talks a lot about budgeting and being smart with money. And so, you know, that's her career is, I guess, like a money expert. But, you know, I think like she's creating a lot of value for the type of content that she's posting. Great suggestions. So, So I would say those two might be helpful, but I don't... I think this might be a grass is always greener thing where you're like, you think it's going to be cooler than it is. And I don't know. Yeah. If I had any quick tip for this, I would say stop thinking about it. (laughs) Honestly, the times that I've stepped back and I've not tried to, because there have been times in my life where I've tried actively to grow my following and I've really paid attention to unfollows and follows and numbers. And it never, ever, ever, ever helped me do anything, including but not limited Mm. to gaining my like a bigger following. So. You know, the other advice that I have for this person that I'm going to steal. So Kate Kennedy, who hosts Be There in Five, it used to be a running shtick. And I don't know if she still does this, but she blocked her husband. I think she blocked most of her family when she first started to grow her following because she was like, this is not about them, where it's like, it is about connecting with these other people who like don't know you in real life. And it's really cringe. And so she, she just like blocked her husband. She was like, this isn't for you. Yeah. Jake doesn't even watch my stories half the time. (laughs) Yeah, so it's probably healthier that way. Yeah, so if that's something that you worry about, just block everyone that you actually know. (laughs) Okay, moving on to this next one. Uh, I'll, I'll pose this question to you, Becca. Sure. I'm writing my first novel and I'm incredibly excited about it. However, I'm struggling to find consistent productive writing time, keyword productive, I also work a full-time job in public relations and I'm bound to my desk for eight plus hours of the day during the week, often writing, but for others, which means my brain is a little tapped out during my leftover free time. While I've made a good dent on my book draft, it's taken me more than a few years to get even 14,000 words down. I try to get writing in wherever I can after work on weekends during a lunch break, but find that unless my mind is in the right space, I really struggle to get this book onto paper. Do you have suggestions for finding that key productive writing time? Or if it's a matter of just getting it done, how do you force yourself to put words on paper when your mind is just not in the creative space? Okay. First thing I'll say is that you're doing something that's really hard and don't dismiss that it's hard and expect it to be easy. I feel like a lot of questions, not this question necessarily, but I feel like a lot of people ask questions about writing where it sounds like they're looking for the easy button and there isn't an easy button. Like it's a hard thing. So you're not doing a bad job just because it's hard. Um, The other thing I'll say is that a lot of people have written books while having full-time jobs. So it is possible. I didn't do it. You're working harder than I am. And So who knows what my advice is worth here. I would say I have two ideas or pieces of wisdom for you. The first thing is that I wonder if what you are defining as productive is good writing. Because my first draft that I'm writing right now is awful. It is so terrible, riddled with holes, and poorly written. And 
I think that that is part of the process of just getting it down. And if I said to myself, I only want to write when the writing is good, I would have 500 words right now instead of 30,000. And so I think part of it is just persevering through the bad stuff and knowing that everyone has bad, bad first drafts. And I couldn't believe that on my first book. I, I was like, well, everyone else has bad first drafts, but mine's going to be perfect. And the sooner you accept that and like, I found um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott to be really helpful as a book resource to try to internalize that. Following other authors on Instagram who talk about this is helpful that, you know, even Emily Henry writes shitty first drafts is really helpful. But yeah, I wonder how much of it is a mental block of you're saying I'm not being productive versus you're expecting a first draft to be good and it's not, it's just not going to be good and, and redefining what is productive where like I would say productive is writing 1500 words for me that's my writing goal on a daily basis and like they don't have to be good words they just have to be words and then you can go back and edit them because you can't edit nothing so maybe redefine what productivity is but I get it like sometimes you just you can't make your brain do it um and especially after eight hours of work at something else the other thing I would say is you didn't talk a lot about what your life situation is outside of work but I wonder if you can just like really commit to this for a month. So I don't know if you've heard of NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, which is in November. Basically, the point is, is that you write every day and you write the first draft of a novel in a month. And the first draft is supposed to be like 55,000 words. So it's like a, real, a pretty thin draft. And I wonder if, I don't know if you have kids, I don't know if you have like a partner who can help pick up the slack, but I wonder if you can just say for a month, I'm going to be hyper-focused on this and I'm going to do this every day for a month even if I don't feel like it, I'm just going to push through because I feel like I could more easily commit to something for a month than I could for an indefinite period of time. So I feel like for me, I might want to just like the only way out is through it. But again, I, I recognize that it might not be possible with your life, but I wonder if you can cash in some favors. Like if you do have kids, if your partner would take on more work or if you have local family or you know community who can help with things to give you space to just do it for a month. So... I hope that was helpful. Those are all great tips, I think. Do you have anything to add? I, I think you covered most of it. I would say, I, I feel like I've written more consistently in the past six months on a daily basis than I have ever. <laughs> and the way that I've done it is to like hyper-focus on the feeling I get like in the moment of writing when it feels really fun. And that's how I keep going back to it. It's not that I think what I've written is great or that I'm getting somewhere even. It's just like the actual act of doing it I find enjoyable. Kind of in the same way of like getting up early in the morning to read. Like that's the thing that gets me doing it consistently is that that experience is so pleasant. Not that writing is pleasant as a whole, but you must like writing if, if you're if you're asking this question. And yeah, your thing about the bad first draft, I feel like a lot of people think like, oh, everyone says their first draft is bad, but it's not as bad as mine. That like it's a different type of bad. But I think it's important to remember that like it doesn't, I don't know. You're comparing <laughs> your first draft to somebody's finished draft and you don't know what their first draft looked like. And exactly. <laughs> chances are it was bad. <laughs> exactly. All right. Let's take an ad break. I think we can all probably relate to choosing a doctor at random and leaving the appointment feeling less than great. Sure, maybe they were professional, but 
Maybe they didn't make you feel totally comfortable or give you enough time to ask questions. And when it comes to your health, it's not worth wasting time on a doctor who is just okay. That's why ZocDoc is such a great resource for finding just the right doctor. On the ZocDoc app, finding the doctor that's right for you is seamless. My personal pet peeve is going to a doctor's appointment and immediately feeling rushed and not being given the opportunity to ask questions or talk more about the specific symptom that I'm having. And instead of listening to you intently and asking how you feel and helping you along, the doctor is just like checking the clock. They're like, they have a checklist of like everything they have to ask you for insurance purposes. And I love that on ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you and prioritize your care. And you can know that in advance because they have reviews. So you can kind of like quality control in advance. Yeah, I also hate this experience and I hate the feeling of just leaving that appointment and still having questions or worries and feeling like I wasted my chance of being there with the doctor and they rushed me out the door. I recently actually used ZocDoc to schedule a checkup and I chose the doctor specifically based on patient reviews that were positive. And the doctor I met with was thorough, thoughtful, and gave me more time than I've ever had with any other doctor to answer all the questions I have, even the ones that I initially thought were silly. With ZocDoc, you can choose from thousands of patient-reviewed doctors and specialists, browse doctor profiles, upload and verify your insurance information, and get the care you need. Go to ZocDoc.com BOP and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com BOP. ZocDoc.com BOP. Continuing on, more advice coming at you. All right, I'll, I'll ask you this question, Becca. I went to eight weddings last year. Okay, wow, that, that's so many. <laughs> and they were all out of town. For context, they were all either close friends or family. One friend in particular had their wedding and there was a far flight, plus we had to stay at a five-star hotel. I had to take time off of work and I have no vacation time as an independent contractor. When I think about it, I still find it hard. But I was a bridesmaid and couldn't bring myself to bow out. Have you ever had lingering feelings of discomfort due to how much someone is expected to spend? Would love some general thoughts of wedding guest etiquette. Love the podcast. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> you just had your wedding year. You had your wedding year. I have Everyone, never had this. this You've never so had this? Way. Oh, I, I have so many friends. <laughs> I had two wedding years. I had one in my 20s and one in my 30s. And in my 30s, it was worse because everyone had more income. And so there was the expectation that you traveled not just for a wedding, but you traveled for a bachelorette party, sometimes for a shower. And I easily dropped 10 grand, probably more going to all of these weddings over the course of a year. And it sucks. It sucks to be like, I am just spending all of my disposable income on things that I don't get to control plan or isn't how I want to spend my money. So my last wedding year was in 2018. So I can tell you that, was it 2018, 2019? I don't remember. It was pre-pandemic. So anyway, what I can tell you is that the sting fades. You will be glad that you were there for your friends. It is unrealistic to expect your eight friends who are getting married to all plan around the fact that other people, some of whom they don't know, are also getting married that year. So you just got stuck. And that sucks. And I have been there. And I am sorry that you are broke 
And it's it sucks too when you're not in a relationship and you're not imminently having your own wedding. Because I think when you're imminently having your own wedding, you're like, oh, I'll get this all back in however long. And I think you just got to think of it as banking karma. You're like banking friendship karma with these people who you love and want to support. I mean, like don't go to your random coworker's wedding if you're having a wedding year and you you are already out 10 grand. But, you know, for the people who are your close friends and family, which it says, sounds like this is, like you want to do that. I would say let it go. And I would also say like it'll come back to you. So my book is coming out this year and I I was having dinner the other night with one of my friends who lives in San Francisco and she's like, I can't wait to fly out to New York for your, for your book launch and your book party. And it's like, I think whether or not you have a wedding, there will be a time in your life when you want your people to support and surround you. And that requires travel and taking time off and staying in a hotel. And like, you'll get it back somehow, even if it's not exactly reciprocal. So I think you just got to think of it as banking karma. That's a great answer. You covered that one. Thank you. I haven't been to enough weddings to comment on this. And it sucks because you get bitter about it. And it's it's not anyone's fault. It's just like the the cumulative effect of having so many weddings in a year sucks. But if you're like, it's unrealistic for me to expect, especially people from like disparate friend groups or like to consider that you have so many weddings, like that's not their problem. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Great answer. All right. Let's have you answer this one. Okay. This person says, I took a few years working half time while I raised my kids. And at the time, I was super thankful because it helped me find some balance while also spending more time with my family. Now I see coworkers and friends with these huge achievements, and I feel insanely jealous. I know it's never too late, but what do you do when you're feeling stagnant at work or maybe don't have specific goals you're working towards? For reference, I have a master's degree in certifications, so it's not that I've never had achievements. I'm just stagnant right now. Okay, well, you've definitely had lots of achievements if you're raising children (laughs) and getting master's degrees and all of that. So um, I would, you know, be proud of that, first of all. I think my first thought with this is like to, I would say, examine like what exactly you're jealous of. Is it the exact promotion they have? Is it the work they're doing? Is it a specific accolade? Or are you just kind of, imagining like a different path your life could have taken and feeling a little bit sad about that. I know like when I, this is different, but when I quit my job to go freelance for a while and still now, even sometimes I'll see people get promoted to like deputy editor or like editor in chief. And I'll, there'll be this moment where I'm like, ah, it could have been me, but do I really actually want that job? (laughs) Maybe not. So yeah, I would be curious to know like what exactly you you would be jealous of. I think that's kind of the question to to examine. I don't know. But what do you think, Becca? I don't know. I I feel like this is out of my lane because I I don't have kids or plan to have kids, so I might be dismissive of my own advice too. The only things I could think of for this person that might be really helpful is to sit down and do a list of goals for the year of what you want to accomplish and you know, whatever number of those that is and whatever form those goals take of whether they're goals for your family or goals for hobbies or goals for learning or any type of goal you want and and kind of just trying to define in advance, like this is what I actually care about. So you can check back with that and make sure that you're doing things that lead up to that. Like, I think that could be cool. 
I also remember, I haven't read this in a really long time, so I hope that this book isn't like now problematic, but I remember really reading and loving The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin in a time in my life where I was feeling really lost. Um, it was when I, I was leaving Boston to move to San Francisco and I was going through this career change and I didn't really know what I wanted. And so I think reading something like that, and there's also a podcast if you find that you really resonate with the book, like getting some academic context around happiness, I guess, is what I would say, could be really helpful to help define why you're feeling some of these feelings and how you can improve your your state of mind around it. So yeah, I don't know how helpful that was. I think it's very helpful. Okay, this next one. Oh, Separate. now we're getting into the hot tops. I just want to preface this <laughs> by saying I would say 80% of the questions we got were either should I leave my job or should I break <laughs> yeah. up with this friend? Yeah, it's true. All so we're going to tackle them. So I know we're getting a little long here, but if you're, uh, oh, we're wow, getting we into are. it. We're getting into the it. Okay. Several years ago, I didn't like where I lived and I wasn't making enough money to support myself and pursue my interests, but I love my job. Now I like where I live and I have enough money to support myself, support my family members who need the assistance and spend money on my own interests without questioning my ability to, but I hate my job. I don't like the industry I am in or the work I am doing. I have lost any faith I had in the management of the company. I resent any time I have to spend working for the company because it isn't aligned with my career interests or goals. To get back to a job I like, I would have to attain an offer for a fully remote role in a highly competitive industry and take an extreme pay cut, neither of which are easy. How can I make myself a fully remote candidate appealing to companies who are also hiring hybrid candidates? Should I even be considering taking the cut to my salary? I have already added passion projects, but doing so has only made me resent my job even more. What can I do? My gut here is that this is being reduced to much more of a black and white situation than it needs to be. You've given yourself two shitty options, and of <laughs> course they both sound awful. You could either have a job that you love but not get paid, or you can have a job that you hate and a life that you like. Like, of course, those are shitty options. So I wonder if there are shades of gray in between. Can you stay in your current industry working for a different company? Can you shift what you are doing currently slightly? And I don't know what you do, but, you know, for example, if you work in sales and you're currently selling guns, and you of course you don't like what you're doing. Could you go sell solar energy? Could you sell something different? And could you flip from, if you're still in sales, can you flip from B to B sales to B to C sales? Or you know, let's say you're a nurse. Could you go from a hospital setting to a home health setting? Like there, there might be flips on what you're currently doing that would make your current situation more palatable without going the full route of I'm blowing everything up. I'm taking a huge pay cut and I'm a less desirable candidate because I'm fully remote. So I wonder if there are shades of gray in between. I also wondered with this person, if you are writing into a podcast about this, I feel like you had to have already talked to people in your life about this. And I wonder what their response is. And I wonder if everyone's telling you one thing and you're looking for us to tell you a different answer. And so examining what are the people in your life saying and why do you feel the opposite? And if there's any help there, but I feel like right now the situation that you presented us with 
is I have two flavors of shit sandwich, which is a Liz Gilbert-ism. And I need to decide between two shitty options. And maybe that really is the case. And in that case, I would probably pick high paying job and life I like, even though I don't have fulfillment. And that's the honest truth. And I don't think that that's the same for everyone. And so I don't know, pick your flavor of shit sandwich, but that's what I would pick. What would you pick? What would I pick? I think this is, this changes for me kind of year to year. I think I would have to ask myself like, which is more fulfilling to me is like having this extra money to support outside interests or, I mean, but also like what takes up more of your time, I guess, because if you're in this job, you're miserable in all the time, then like, it doesn't really matter how much extra money you have. Like you just be miserable all the time. I would say my first thought after reading this was that you do not want to be in the job you're in. (laughs) So whether that's finding some sort of a gray area that lets you choose something else, like clearly, like, I don't think I don't, there were a few different questions within this, but I mean, no matter what, I don't think you should stay in the job you're in. If you don't have to, like, even if it's something else temporary while you're searching for the perfect thing. I mean, when you're using words like resent and lost any faith, in management like it's just very clear resent actually came up twice it's very clear you don't want to be there um so maybe it's not about finding the perfect thing but just getting out while you can i don't know if that's helpful but i wish you luck i don't know either i think it's totally subjective to the person i do think that we're in a very interesting time with like remote and hybrid situations and how people want to stay remote and companies want you to go hybrid and like there's this kind of push and pull of um what you're willing to give up and what they're willing to give up and anyway good luck listener okay okay no there's two more and they're opposite sides of the same coin I put one after the ad break because I thought this was interesting. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Two friendship breakup questions to end it. So this person said, as I get older, I am more protective of time outside of my family and hobbies. There are a couple of long-term friendships that just don't fit as well as they used to. How to gently break up with friends. No drama and don't want to ghost them. I have a very strong opinion on this. I do, too. I have thought about this question all week. Okay, I wonder if we're the same. Should should I answer first? Yeah, you answer first. I don't think, I think you do ghost them. I I don't think you have to do anything, honestly. But I also think there are some follow-up questions, which are, are these friends that like you're already kind of drifting apart, which I would assume is the case? Or are you speaking every single day and you're like, I need to end this because like we're literally talking nonstop and I'm just going to drop off the face of the earth. If it's the former, then like I think just let things happen naturally that are already happening, which is you're growing apart. You both feel the same way or you both would make more of an effort. And like there's no need to like make it into a huge drama. That is my perspective. It's different if you're like in constant communication and you're all of a sudden like, actually, I hate this person. I don't want to be doing this anymore. Then I think you owe them something. But still, that feels miserable to me, too. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me. I technically agree, but I think I have a spicier take on it. Oh. So this this question is really sparse on context. So this could be the wrong read. I don't mean to insult the person. I am only reading this based on the question we have gotten. It doesn't sound like these friends have done anything bad. It just seems like you don't want to be friends with them, which is fine. You are more than entitled to not be friends with people that you don't want to be friends with and to use your time however you want. 
However, in this scenario, you're being the asshole. You're being the asshole and gently breaking up with, like, you can't gently break up with this friend to be like, hey, I've assessed my priorities and I found that I don't want to spend time with you. That's my point. When it was like no drama, I was like, there's no way you send the text that's like, actually, I know you're supposed to hang out on Tuesday and go to SoulCycle, but I've I've decided in the meantime that I don't think we should be friends. Right. (laughs) Like... If there is more context here where it's like they have done these things to hurt me or here's why I don't want them in my life anymore, which it kind of just sounds like time and priorities, like you are being and you're entitled to be, but like you're being the asshole and do it, but don't make them feel bad about it so that you can say, I don't ever have to worry about this person texting me again. And then I don't have to feel bad when I have to turn down their plans. Because I feel like by breaking up with them, you're putting a world of hurt on their plate because you're basically giving them the platonic equivalent of it's not you, it's me. Right. And yeah, I think like the reason that we break up with romantic partners is because most romantic relationships are you have one partner. So speaking about monogamous relationships, it's like by not breaking up with somebody, you're holding them back from finding the right partner. Friendships are not like that. Like you can have many friendships. So, you know, if you just don't talk to these people, theoretically, they'll get the hint and invest more in other friendships. But like, I don't know. I think, I don't think there's like a polite conversation to be had about this. No, I think you just let it, let it, let it die. Yeah. And even if you own it and you're like, Hey, I know this is an asshole move. Like you're just, you're telling somebody that they're not worth that much to you. Yeah. And like, honestly, if you just stop talking to them, if you do ghost them, as you say, um, and what they message you in six months and like, Hey, like, I just, I feel like we haven't been hanging out as much. You could just say what you said, which is like, I'm more protective of my time outside of family and hobbies. And I just don't have as much time to dedicate to the friendship, but I like wish you the best. I mean, even that will probably sting, but I feel like it would be easier than just being like, no more. I also have to wonder, and this is me projecting, this is like totally not in the question. I'm guessing that this person has young children by the, by the phrasing. And then they're saying like, who knows, maybe they're just like obsessed with their siblings and they're like, I want to spend time with my, my family in that way. But I assume they have young children. And I'm like, I just, I wonder if this is hasty to fully cut off these friendships. Like what about when your kids are 13 and think you're the most embarrassing person on the planet and like, don't want anything to do with you. Like, I I don't know. Like, I think that you can maybe like back off these friendships without cutting it off. Like, is there a point that you're going to want these friends in your life later when maybe your family and your hobbies aren't as fulfilling? Or like, if you hit a rough spot with your partner, like, wouldn't you want these friends to talk to about that? Yeah. And to your point, it's not like dating. Like you don't need a clean break. Like yeah. it's it like sometimes relationships just evolve <laughs> and like friendships and that's fine. <laughs> I think you're yeah. right. Like you could come back together at a, at a certain point. So why like make that more difficult? Yeah. Why break up with them and then be like, I, I never want to be friends with this person again because they <laughs> told me that I had very little value to them. I don't know. I'm definitely reading into this question because it was it was thin on details. So this might not be the read. But that's how it sounds to me. Let's take an ad break. (laughs) 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process because we're always learning and changing. I know when I was first reviewing some of these advice questions and someone asked about the wedding advice, I thought about our wedding, which was only two years ago, and I was surprised to realize that I am now a totally different person than I was then, night and day. In other words, even when we're not thinking about it, we are always evolving. Therapy is a great way to deepen that self-awareness and understanding, and BetterHelp can connect you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. For me, therapy was a great way to check in with myself regularly. When I would react to something a certain way, I would be able to process both those emotions and how I reacted to them on a regular basis instead of just forgetting about them or pushing them down or moving on entirely. And therapy is not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone and anyone. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BadOnPaper today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BadOnPaper. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Last question. And it's a big one. It's a juicy one. It's filled with detail. It's the reverse (laughs) of the person before. All right. Hi, Olivia and Becca. Hi. I I need help with a friendship struggle that's been slowly building over the past few months. I have a friend who I've considered a very close friend for about two years now. She started a new job this past September as a teacher with lots of extracurricular student involvement. Since then, our hangouts have gone from multiple times per week to once a month. We text more frequently than that, but most of the time it feels one-sided. 99% of the time, I'm the one initiating plans. She always seems genuinely excited about spending time together when we do, but lately I'm questioning whether it's genuine or not. Most recently, my son had surgery and she was the only good friend who didn't check in on us that day. A few days after surgery, my son ended up back in the hospital with complications and she texted me the first day he was in the hospital, but then radio silence following. This stung quite a bit. My husband thinks I should just keep pushing and reaching out, but I'm starting to wonder if it's time to either A, throw in the towel and slowly back away, knowing that she's in a different phase of life right now, or B, talk to her about it directly. Am I being selfish when I know she's got a lot going on in her life lately? What would you do? Also, Dream Food Court, Duncan, Sabaro, Jersey Mike's, TCBY. Solid choices all around. Do you have thoughts on this sorted tale? Not sorted, (laughs) detailed tale. I do. I do. I can tell you what I think her options are, and I can also tell you what I would do. I think in this case, she can confront the friend because she's not being the asshole, quote unquote. She is being theoretically not given what she expects or needs in this friendship. And I think she can if she decides, write a text and say, hey, it really hurt me when you didn't check up when my son had surgery. And I feel like we're spending less time together and I feel like you could you could initiate a conversation about that. I think you have to really assess the person that you're having this conversation with. I would react really poorly to that. If somebody came to me and said, hey, here's all the ways that I feel like you're failing in our friendship, I would probably react poorly to it, even if it was true. I think there's other people that you could have a, a perfectly civil conversation about that and fix their behavior. I think I would probably pull away from that friendship if somebody had that conversation with me, just to be 100% honest with you. So I think be careful about initiating the conversation. It might help give you the answers you need, but it might not help the friendship in the long term. 
I would probably do nothing. I would probably not not break up with the friend and not throw in the towel, but I think I would maybe change the way that I was trying to hang out with this friend. So instead of trying to make one-on-one plans, if you have a friend group, perhaps, you know, inviting this friend along to other plans with friends. So it's great if she comes, there's not pressure on her side. And on your side, you're not disappointed and you don't get to do something fun if this friend is not available or, you know, literally or emotionally to to hang out with you. So I would maybe turn it more into like a group hang friend. And then, you know, hopefully she makes the effort and you can then amp up your friendship time once this adjustment season in her life is more stable. So that's what I would do. But I think you're I think you would be in the right to have a conversation if you wanted to. What do you think? How would you react if somebody came to you and said, I think you're being a bad friend? I would cry instantly. Because <laughs> I think you're both more emotionally evolved than I am, but I also think you're more sensitive. So I can, yeah. I, I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure. I'm not sure which way I would see it going for you. I, you would take it seriously. You know, what's funny is that like, I feel like there's no version of this conversation, no matter who you are, where someone says that to you. And then that person doesn't immediately have things that they have wrong with the friendship too. Oh, you know, it's like, I don't see the situation where someone in my life would say that to me. Like I've definitely, don't get me wrong. I've had multiple times in my life where I've been a bad friend. I'm not perfect or anything, but if someone came to me with those very rarely, I think, would I be like, well, they've been perfect and I've been shitty. Like, I would be mm-hmm. like, well, actually, you know, there was this other thing that happened that we never talked about that we both pushed under the rug. And I think there's been some lingering, you know, r- stuff from that. So I think that's probably what would happen. But in this particular situation, what I would do, I don't know. I feel like with stuff like this, I ask myself a lot, like, what is what energy do I really want to put towards this? Like, do I really want to spend my time and effort crafting this whole conversation that I know is just going to devolve into me feeling worse? Like, I don't, it wouldn't make me feel better to get it off my chest, to be honest. Like, if it really bothered me that a friend of mine did this. I also have to wonder what type of surgery it is. Like, is this, your son is getting ear tubes and it's pretty, a pretty, routine surgery is this like your son has a brain tumor because I think you you can be different levels of mad for this friend not checking in versus how severe this situation is because I think the other thing is like the most important thing in your life is not always the most important thing in your friend's lives and it's like determining how and when you support someone Mm -hmm. and it's like if my friend's son was having ear tubes put in I probably wouldn't check on them honestly yeah. I mean, I, I also like don't know anything about kids' surgeries. So it could be maybe this person is just not like, I don't know, familiar. But I think I don't I, I, I don't think you have to do anything. I wouldn't do anything. I when I've had times in the past where well, friends. It sounds have like done you still want like to that. be friends with this person. So it's like Right. Right. Exactly. So I don't do think, you think you should make the effort. Oh. <laughs> to, oh, I no, I do think you should make the effort to still be friends with them. I don't think you should just throw in the towel. Because you're not like, oh, it's, it doesn't sound like you want to just be done with this friend. Yeah. And they did check in. Like, I'm not saying that like, it's definitely like a half-assed thing if like they should have checked in in the first surgery and they checked in the next day, but like maybe, you know, it's not like they're completely absent. Um, so maybe they're just, they are, like you said, just have a lot going on and maybe more than, you know, but I, I don't think you need to do anything necessarily. So this concludes the advice portion. How? (laughs) My advice is do nothing. 
how do you think we did on a scale of one to ten? I thought it was pretty good, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah. Did you not? <laughs> I feel like we gave better advice last time. I feel like in the first section, we just commiserated with people and gave them no real advice. And then in the second section, we really, think. we really went out of our lane and gave advice on things that we're not qualified for. And then I called somebody an asshole. I'd give us a five, honestly. <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad. Honestly, most of the time when I ask for advice, what I'm really looking for is someone to say, I understand or like I've been there and I don't know or you're not a bad person. Oh, here's an interesting question. We're already so over time. Just fuck it. Um, <laughs> if you could get advice from one person. Pedro on Pascal. Internet- oh. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Maybe you're not in the right headspace for this question. <laughs> no, I was going to say, Go whose ahead. advice would you like honestly really want if you had like a pressing life question? Anyone on earth? Yeah. Drew Barrymore. I actually think I might agree. Oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Oprah's gotten a little out of touch. I don't think she'd give you the best advice. She's gardening somewhere, just thriving in her money. Yeah. Drew Barrymore, I feel like would both be like, I relate. And also here's my thoughts. The other answer is I feel like if I had like a work question or like a tougher uh, question where I needed some tough love, because I think Drew would go easy on you. Yeah. I'd like Michelle Obama to give me advice. Oh yeah. That's a good balance. That, that I would like both of them. That would be a fun like cocktail party. Oh yeah. They should start an advice show. We should, we should make that happen. <laughs> Let's invite them. Hold on. Let me get my phone. <laughs> Maybe Pedro has their number. No, it's fine. <laughs> Gone too far. So wait, what, what score did you give us? Did you give us a score? Oh, no. I mean, I think like 7.25. Oh, wow. I think we presented like differing ideas, like life experience. You gave some, you did call one person. I insulted asshole. somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but they might not still be listening. No, they're gone. They're long gone. But yeah. But maybe I, I entertained I the other people listening. <laughs> you did. I think it was entertaining. I think sometimes you need somebody to tell you when you're being an asshole. Yes, that's true. I bet they're a great person in every other aspect of their life. I mean, there's literally a whole Reddit thread. Have you ever gone in there? The Am, Am I, I the, the asshole? asshole? We should do that I've, episode I've sometime. Some. I'll just read you some prompts. <laughs> <laughs> there's some good ones on there and some horrifying ones that make me question humanity. <laughs> Let's get into some end matter. Save us from ourselves. What are you obsessed with? You already know. I'm not even going to say it out loud. Peter I've already Pascal mentioned TikTok. his name too many times. Do you think it's like Bloody Mary where you can summon him if you say it enough times? I'm beginning to think it might happen at this point. It's my greatest shame. It's a sickness, as I told you over time. Where does he live? Where is he based? New York, LA? I don't know his address. Or how do you not? How do you spend so much time on Pedro Pascal TikTok and he not seems know what kind city of like, he's based he in? He seemed kind of like he's, he's like a, a nomad. Like he's just kind of all over the place. You don't think he owns a home? No, I'm sure he does, but I think LA. Okay. I, <laughs> I'm i actually proud of myself that I didn't have an answer for you. I think we should they all were, celebrate they this They were moment. filming The Last of Us in, I want to say Vancouver or somewhere oh. in Canada. I listened to a podcast that the showrunner of The Last of Us hosts. Oh, same. 
Wait, is it the Last of Us podcast? No, script notes. No, you don't even watch the show. Oh, <laughs> they, there is a podcast for the Last of Us, which I've been listening oh. to because I like the show. That, that, oh. That's how how this all kicked off, by the way. It's not just me being a teenage girl. Anyway, mm-hmm. what are you obsessed with? Sure. Um, I am obsessed with one of my Sephora purchases recently was the Anastasia Beverly Hills Soft Glam Eyeshadow Palette. Ooh, Soft Glam. I think that this is the present day 30-something answer to the Urban Decay Naked Palette. Mm, A classic. A classic. I think that this is the modern version of that. I'm really into it. uh, How many shades? I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to guess 12. That's a lot. Nice. I really like it. There's one black one in there that I'm like, I guess maybe you could use this eyeliner, but I'm not going to go that far. But the rest of it's really usable. Okay. So if you were a naked palette girl and you're looking for that feeling, it's this. <laughs> who, who wasn't? It's all. Well, of I'm us. excited. I'm like I'm going to, I'm going to Maine and I'm going to Vegas, all same suitcase. I'm not coming home in between, and I'm like I can bring this, and this has everything I need for my makeup for everything from going out to dinner in Maine to Las Vegas. That's, it's good. It's a staple. What are you reading? I read two things. So first thing I read was Things We Hide from the Light by Lucy Score. And this is the sequel to Things We Never Got Over, which was that like super viral book from TikTok uh, last year, like hit the New York Times bestseller list. It was it's a small town romance about this runaway bride and a grumpy barber. I loved it. I liked it so much more than I expected to. I was so excited for the second book. Uh Oh, it didn't do it for me. So the pro- I have a couple problems. The first problem is that the main the love interest, the male love interest is a police officer and I just I felt all kinds of weird about it. And I think she did choice. A, the best job she could have with it, but it was hard. And I it made sense that he was a police officer cuz in the first book the love interest is like this really rule-breaking he owns a barbershop, he owns a bar, and then his brother is like the goody two-shoes cop. So like it made sense, the dichotomy of them. But I was like, oh, I don't really want to read about this guy or lionize him. Um, And there was like a plot line about somebody else being a bad cop. And I was like, I just don't, I don't want to read about this. And then the second thing is it felt a little too formulaic to me. Where like both books had a third act kidnapping. Both of them did. (laughs) Like that doesn't seem like a well you can go back to. (laughs) (laughs) that got me that said i will still read the third book which if you have read any of them it's it's lucian and sloan's book because they're the couple in this universe i'm the most excited about it better be three for three on the kidnappings because i assume it's gotta be at this point you can't do two and not the other no you gotta do the trifecta but she's a librarian and he's a shady political consultant and i'm ready okay Sounds fun. Yeah. So that was a little bit of a bust for me. And then the second thing I read was Before We Were Innocent by Ella Berman, which is out on April 4th. And we did her first book for book club years ago. I don't know what year it was. Um, Her first book was The Comeback. And I loved this book. I I loved her first book, too. It's about these three teenage girls the summer after high school go to an island in Greece for this like graduation trip 
and one of them dies and it becomes this huge media story. And it's told in two timelines, the summer that it happened, which is 2008, and then the present day, 2018. So they're they're 28 in this. And it's kind of the two who lived, how has it impacted their life? And there were a bunch of things in this book that I thought were really interesting. I think it really tackled what does true crime, like the industry of people speculating and following these stories, do to the people who are actually involved in the cases? And like... How does the media making things salacious affect these people? I think it also had a lot to say about how we treat women and how we treated women, especially in 2008. Not well. Slut shaming. (laughs) Not well. (laughs) Slut shaming and like you were asking for it type stuff. And then it also had, I don't know if I would call it a thriller or a suspense, but like there was like, it was pacey. You were trying to find things out. So sounds really good. I really liked this. I'm going to read this one soon. And it also was a great story about complicated friendships, especially complicated friendships we have when we're younger and then like the role that these people play in our lives. Oh, I love that. As adults. So I was super into this. Five stars. It's darker. I think you would like it if you like a thriller, but I think you would also like it if you aren't a thriller person like I'm not. Sounds very promising. What did you read? I am reading multiple things, but I didn't finish anything this week. So I'm going to wait till next week and we're running late anyway. Will you tell us about our, our March book club pick? Yes. Our March book club pick is The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. This is a story about how the whole world wakes up one day and on everyone's step, no matter who you are or where you are, is a box. And inside that box is a string. And the strings we soon find correlate with the length of your life. And so... Couples have different string lengths. People have to deal with this. The world has to deal with this. And there's there's a lot to talk about. I'm very excited. Join us. We've gotten a lot of good feedback about this as a pick, which makes me even more excited. And me too. If you have thoughts on this, I would love you to send us a voicemail. We'll put the number in the show notes. We'll have Maddie post on social media this week with a call out. Uh, or you can email us a voice memo at batonpaperpodcast at gmail.com. I love when there's listener participation. Me too. With that said, you can find us in the Facebook group to discuss this episode. Or if you want to offer advice to any of these people because you think we did a terrible job, by all means. <laughs> um, we're on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. I'm at Olivia Mentor. And we'll see you next week. 